uh, probably about a year or so after I came to Christ one Saturday morning. I remember visiting my pastor at a local flea market. He was bivocational. He drove a school bus, and his wife had a, an antique business at the, the local flea market. One of those things, not where you set it up each time, but you have like a little booth there, and, and you, you pay for a slot. And I, I'd been down there visiting him, and, and I, I walked between two men. As I was leaving, there was a hallway there and a doorway, and, and I walked between these two men, one in front of his shop and the other on the other side. Not, the hall wasn't too wide. And the one had a, that in front of his shop had a broom, and he was, he was sweeping outside of his store, and, and the other one was just talking. About the time I walked up, he, he, he reached the broom out in front of me, which caused me to stop, and, and I looked down to see what he was sweeping up, and it was a gospel track on the other side of the, of the hallway. And, and smirkingly, he swept that into his his pile of rubbish, and kind of chuckled to his friend as if to say, that's where this thing belongs. And I can remember, again, being a young believer, not knowing a whole lot, but what I did know is that I was a great sinner and that Christ had saved me. This moment of passion came over me, and, and I just remember feeling everything in me wanted to get down on the, on the ground and, and pull that that gospel track out of the pile of dirt and, and clean it off and, and, and hold it, cherish it in some way as precious before, before these, two, these two mocking men. And I didn't. But I remember the feeling of the Lord being disregarded, just stirred up something in me. I wanted to say, do you not know who he is? <laughs> do you not know that's the message of life? That there's life and death here that... That, that you are facing, and, and here is, is God's gracious answer. What do you feel whenever you hear or see Christ's glory or His work ignored? Is there something that, that, that in you, that, that's in you just cries? Do you not understand how glorious He is? Maybe when you hear the Lord's name taken in vain. I mean, when you, when you see people just totally reject Jesus Christ and live as if He doesn't, doesn't exist? I mean, is there something retching in your heart that, that just leaps up and, and you want to stop? stop. He's, he's glorious. Well, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 28, the Apostle Paul describes a day when, when all of those kinds of things will stop. After describing the humiliation of Christ... He immediately, Paul immediately details the exaltation that Jesus will receive. And he says, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will worship Jesus Christ as Lord. Everyone. He starts his deliberate march toward that moment by exhorting us to walk worthy of, of the gospel. Well, as worthy Christians outside of the church. He tells us back in verse 27, we are to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel. That's in the world, outside of the church. And then he, as you know, he turns inside the church and issues the same encouragement. The way that we walk worthy of the gospel inside the church is preserving unity. Unity in the church is most precious to Christ's heart, and therefore it is one of our greatest aims. And so Paul gives us God's method for that in, in Verses 1 through 4 of Philippians chapter 2. The motivation for unity is, is the gospel itself. The target is one heart, one mind, one soul, 
for the gospel's work, and then you know the way to attain it is you put others ahead of yourself. Do nothing with, from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility in mind you regard one another as more important than your, yourself. And then Paul reminds us that we have a perfect model for that in, in the Lord Himself. In verse 5 of Philippians 2, have this attitude or mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And with that explanation, Paul launches us into the passage that we looked at that last time. It's, it's very familiar to us. It became an early church hymn. It's the, it details Christ's downward steps, the downward steps of the Lord's humiliation to the lowest point that anyone has ever gone. And we listen to that first stanza of that, that hymn together. Jesus takes five steps downward in, in humiliation. He laid aside his regal position. He took the form of a lowly servant. He is born in the likeness of, of man. He humbled himself in obedient death, and he died by degrading crucifixion. He, he went from deity to slave, from God to man, from man to death, and not just any death, not just old age or cancer, but, but from death to crucifixion. And we saw that he did that to recover sinners on, on earth. C.S. Lewis helped us with the illustration like a like a diver who removes his outer garment, Christ laid aside the worship and the exercise of his glory. And he plunged into the icy water at the incarnation, diving downward. He lived in obscurity, serving all, even those who rejected him, and finally reaching the bottom, eat death, even death on the cross. Through the cross, he went into the grave and pulled out those who were buried there. That's you. And that's me. And having taken us to, to those depths, Paul will now take us up again in Christ's ascension. I'm glad he didn't leave us at the bottom, just like Jesus is not left in the, in the grave, nor will you be if you know him as your Savior and Lord. Just as Jesus humbled himself, the Bible also says that God highly exalted him. In verses 6 through 11... Paul sandwiches together the humility of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Hence our title, Humbled and Exalted. They go together. They they cannot be separated. Just as Jesus descended, the Bible also says He ascended and He'll return one day. He remains exalted for all eternity. The one who went to the lowest point is the same one who will be raised to the highest place, even seated on the eternal throne as God Himself. And Paul details the stages of His exaltation. And he gives us four. In our passage, in verses 9 through 11, Paul gives us four stages of Christ's exaltation. He begins with the basis of His exaltation in verse 9. And then he explains or describes the right that comes with that exaltation. Then the reaction to his exaltation, and then finally the goal of his exaltation. Jesus went from death to resurrected life. He went from earth to heaven. He went from among men to God's right hand, and he goes from humiliated to Lord over all. He steps up from the grave to heaven to the right hand, and finally the center of all creation as Lord. That's the the upper progression that the Bible describes. From the grave to heaven, once in heaven to the right hand, and then finally 
the center of all things. That's quite an exaltation. It's described for us right here. Let's look at the first stage that he gives us. It's the basis of his exaltation. Look, if you would, at verse 9. Verse 9. Paul says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name. He says, he begins with these few words, Therefore, or for this reason also, God highly exalted him. And and Paul begins Christ's upward ascent by uh, by noting its origin. He notes it was based on Christ's humble character, his humble act, and it, it comes from God's high honor. I mean, those few little words there, for this reason also, connects us to the previous verses and also explains what's coming. Why? It means because of the humiliation, Paul just got done outlining for us, that's the reason that Christ will be lifted high. As I said, the, the, the two are inextricably linked. This is like a, this is like a hinge. Just as humility is the key for unity in the church, it's also the key to Jesus' exaltation. Now, I don't want you to forget why Paul is sharing this passage. It's, don't get lost in the theology. It's, it's a, it's, the theology is there. Yes, it's an amazing theological treatise. And yes, it's a beautiful hymn. But Paul writes this to exhort us, to illustrate something. He exhorted us for, toward unity, and he uses Christ as, as the illustration. And there's another part of this illustration besides just the unity. Paul appeals to us to follow Christ's example. But verse 5, have this attitude or mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And he appeals to us to follow Christ's example of humility. And now he's explaining in God's economy what happens whenever we do When we humble ourselves, not only does unity come, but God exalts us. We'll share in that same exaltation. It's a divine principle. John MacArthur said, just as in the divine economy of things, it's by giving that a person receives. It's also by serving that a person is served. By losing one's life, one finds it. By By dying to self, one lives. It's by humbling oneself that that one is exalted. And the one follows the other as surely night follows day. Self-sacrifice and humility is rewarded by by God. So this is not just a picture of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, but it's a profound illustration of a divine principle which will benefit your lives as well. The way to honor in the the kingdom is, is humility. It's a universal principle in the, in the Bible. The way to exaltation in God's world is humble service. Isn't it what Jesus said whenever the disciples were arguing? Who gets to sit at the right hand or the, or the left? He said, you want to be great? Don't be like the world. Don't lord it over like the Gentiles. You want to be great, be a, be a servant. And you want to be the greatest. You want, to, you want to go to the highest position, go to the lowest position, become a bond slave. And here Paul is illustrating that for us to encourage us to do the same thing. It's the path that our Lord cut for us. And Paul is illustrating that principle through the life of Jesus. It's not only taught here, it's, it's, again, it's a biblical principle taught all the way, 
all the way through the Bible. Matthew 23, 12, you know this. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. You go down to go up. And if you go up, God will bring you down. Peter says the same thing, doesn't he? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. He's the one who is exalting you. Jesus even uses this example for salvation. You remember in Luke 18, I think we just talked about this passage a few weeks ago. Jesus, when He was talking about the publican and the Pharisee, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. That's the the publican rather than the Pharisee. Why? For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. That's from the mouth of our Lord himself, describing salvation. And James says God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And God says you lift yourself up, he'll, he'll thrust you down. But if you lower yourself, he'll lift you up. If you ever make it to Bethlehem, there's a church... You know it, probably you've seen it on TV, the Church of the Nativity. It's one of the oldest churches in the region. It's standing because when the Muslims came in and took over everything, they went into the Church of the Nativity, and there was a mural in there. And, and on that mural, there were some, some individuals that looked like the Muslims. There were the wise men, the Magi, and they were Persian. And they looked just like the ones that were invading. And they said, well, we don't know what this is, but we should probably leave this one standing. And so in God's providence, the Church of the Nativity is one of the oldest ones in the area, and it stands there. But if you go, you'll do an interesting thing whenever you go in. The door, when you go into the the Church of the Nativity, you actually have to duck to, to go in. It's a really small entrance, and that served two purposes. One, it was so invaders couldn't ride their horse into the middle of the church. You had to get off your horse to come in if you were if you were invading. But but the the spiritual principle is you duck, you bow in order to come in. You humble yourself in order to come through the door of the church. God says if you want in the door of heaven, you also humble yourself. And if you humble yourself, then He'll lift you up. Are you proud? (laughs) Don't think that you need God? Then then the Bible says God will make you low. He'll bring you low. He'll show you actually how much that, that you do need Him. Are you weak? He realized how needy you are, then God will fly to your aid and He will will lift you up. He'll lift up your head. And that's exactly what the Father did with Christ. He lifted Him up. Look, if you would, at at verse um, 9. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted Him. Notice what else it says. It happened because of its humble act, because of His humble act, for this reason, Christ's humility. But notice the rest of it. God highly exalted him. That brought about God's high honor. I mean, Jesus didn't exalt himself. The Father did. And it says that he was highly exalted. It's the idea that he was exalted over all others. It means a super exaltation. The, the word highly here is a, it's the preposition, huper. It, it's where we get our word hyper. It means that Jesus, God hyper-exalted him. There was a hyper-exaltation of of Christ. P.T. O'Brien said the point is not that Jesus is one stage higher than than others, but but that he's in a class all by himself. God put him in a class all by himself, exalted him to that position. 
And just as Jesus was humbled lower than any person in redemptive history, so God highly exalted him and lifted him above every other. And that exaltation happened in in several phases, didn't it? First, Jesus was resurrected, wasn't he? I mean, when he dies, he, he, he lays his life down. He said, no man took my life. I willingly lay it down. And he cried from the cross, into my hands I commit your commit my spirit, and, and his body was literally buried in a, in a grave. And God raised him from the, from the dead. First exaltation, part of it was Jesus was resurrected. Peter says, And you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ was an exaltation. In particular, it was a confirmation that his humble ministry was received or accepted by by God. I mean, God wouldn't raise a heretic from the dead, but he raised Christ from the dead. And in raising Christ from the dead, he affirmed Jesus and the fact that he was the suffering Servant. His sacrifice for sinners was accepted by God. And after his death, even death on the cross, God raised him to, to life. But it didn't end there, did it? He goes even higher. How's the book of Acts start? Acts chapter 1. He ascended to heaven to the right hand of God. So he comes out of the grave from death to life. He walks the earth and then he ascends into heaven. Acts chapter 1. You know this passage well. The disciples are there. And after he, Jesus gives them some final instructions, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, you know the rest of it, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing the same Jesus? He's coming again. He ascends into heaven. And Stephen, at his stoning, it's actually part of the reason that Stephen was stoned. Stephen declares to us where Christ ascended. Where did he ascend to? Acts 7, 56. Stephen says after he condemns them for crucifying Jesus, he looks up and he sees into heaven. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the Jews knew exactly what Stephen meant. He was saying Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God Himself. And the right hand of God is a position of honor and, and power. And so they, they, they cried out blasphemy and they, they, they tore, their, tore their robes and they stoned him to death. The one who is at the right hand is the most highly favored one in, in the entire court. So from resurrection to ascension into heaven, and once he gets into heaven, he's exalted to the right hand of God. And Ephesians 1 tells us that that was a position of authority, that God placed him there over all of creation, all because of his humility. Ephesians 1. Paul intros this by saying, These are in accordance with the workings of of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And now the verse on your screen. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all, over all things, to the church. 
the resurrection and the ascension in the Bible, to the right hand are always mentioned together because that's his current position. From the grave to alive, from alive to heaven, in heaven to the right hand, and everything placed under him. That's his current position. But there's even a greater exaltation coming one day. And it's in the future. And that exaltation is in the age to come. It's what we're longing for, what we're looking for. And that's where Paul ends in this passage. This passage describing it. What will come in the future is Christ's crowning when all will bow before Him as Lord. The current age is His resurrection and the ascension to the right hand. That opens the day of salvation from between the first coming and the second coming. Salvation freely by grace alone, by faith alone in this humbled work of Christ is freely offered to all who will repent and believe. And there's coming a day when that ends, the day of salvation ends, the door shuts, and the Lamb comes as the Lion. The Savior returns as the Judge. His ongoing ministry right now is a great high priest. In the age to come, his exaltation will include judge and king, which is what you've read in Revelation 4 and 5. Remember when we went through Revelation? Beautiful throne room scene there where Christ takes the title deed as the owner of the universe and then he executes judgment. Colossians says he reconciled all things to himself, saved and unsaved will be reconciled to God, either in salvation or either in damnation. But they will be reconciled by Christ. Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And then from that point forward in Revelation, Christ begins to unfurl the scroll. He breaks the seals, and with every seal that's broken, The judgments are read and the judgments are poured out. He has the right as judge because of this humility. It's a part of his exaltation. And as judge and Lord over all the earth, every knee will bow. Meaning all of creation will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand and he will be crowned Lord over all. Just as the song says, crown him, crown him. Lord of all. You know what's interesting? In every one of these stages, Christ is still serving. He's not exalted in order just to take a position and now everybody serves Him. He continues His humble heart, even in His exaltation. In the resurrection, He serves. He was raised to be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus served you and me in the resurrection by knocking the back out of the grave. He took the door off the hinges so you can walk out. In His ascension, what's Christ doing right now at the right hand, in His exalted position at the right hand? He's interceding. 
He's your advocate. He's your great high priest. Because he was humbled, he can do that well, Hebrews tells us. He's still serving, even in an exalted position. And when he's Lord over all, he will reign, serving all of heaven with his light and his, and his glory and his grace, and he'll rule. And the Bible says that you'll rule and reign with him. He'll serve even then. And he has that position because of the name that was given to him. The second stage that Paul tells us about here is, is the right of his exaltation. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. For this reason also God highly exalted him because of his humility. God is the one who hyper-exalted him, going to be Lord over all, and watch this, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. Now notice, it says God exalted him, two things, and God bestowed on him. God does two things. He exalts him, and He bestows on Him something. So after describing the basis of Christ's exaltation, He describes the rights that He has because of it. He says God bestowed or gifted Him a name. That's what the word bestowed means. It comes from the word charis, grace. God graced Him with a name. He used the, the title that God gives Him. Jesus was gifted a name, and it says it's not just any name. Notice it's the name. Your Bible should point that out. I'm sure it does. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name. There's a definite article in the Greek. It's not just any name. It's the name. It's a specific name. And Paul says it's a name that is above all others. It's a unique name. It's an exalted name. It's a, it's a specific name. Now, maybe you grew up in a home with a lot of siblings, and if you have, your parents have probably got you confused at, at some time, right? You know, your mother ever said, Billy, Bobby, Joe, whatever your name is, come over here. You ever had that situation happen? Well, your name is, is something that identifies you, distinguishes you. And sometimes your parents get, get you confused. Well, the name that's given to Jesus here is not like that. It's not like a label that distinguishes him from everyone else, like, like you and I have a name. This is a title. This is a name that identifies his rank above all other beings. Because of his humility, he is now positioned above all, and he's giving a name that positions him above all. And so the question is, what's the name? What's the name that he's given? Doesn't Jesus already have a name? Well, yeah, he does. In fact, in Matthew one twenty one, he's given that name... At the end or in the beginning? He's given that name in his birth, isn't he? Matthew 121, the angel told Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You'll call him Jesus because of his humility, what he'll do. You'll call him Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. And so the name here can't be Jesus, because that's the name he received at his birth for his humility. Now, this is a new name. And just like God gave a new name to Abram, he called him Abraham. And just like God gave a new name to Jacob, he called him Israel. Just like God gave a new name to Saul, called him Paul. 
to note a change that took place. So he will give Jesus a new name to exalt him. It's a title. And we're, we're already told it's a name above every name. And there are other people that are named Jesus. And Paul tells us what that name is in verse 11. Look at verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, there's the name that he receives at his birth, based on the promise that he's the, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Here's his new name. He's Lord. It's his new name. He is Lord. Paul even delays telling us what it is to the last line for a dramatic effect. When everyone will declare the name, the new name, the name that is above all. And everyone will call Jesus Christ the name that he received at birth because of the work that he would do on the cross. They'll call him Lord. And God gave him that name to exalt him. And Jesus will receive the title as Lord over all. See, you as a believer already use that title, don't you? Why do you do that? Because he's Lord, right? He's Master. One day, the Bible says, all of creation, including the unsaved rebels who deny him, the fallen angels, even Satan himself, will call him Lord. So when you, as a believer, use the title, the Lord Jesus Christ, you're identifying the entirety of his work. He is Jesus because he saved you from your your sins. He's, He's Christ because he's the promised one. And you call him Lord because he's master. You've bowed the knee to him. You've acknowledged that He's God. It's His full name. It's also why you you can't get the benefits of salvation without submission in salvation. I mean, He can't forgive your sins as Jesus and not be Lord, like you can divide Him up like Lego pieces. Jesus is called Lord 747 times in the New Testament. Now, I didn't go through those and count. I trust the commentator who who wrote it 747 times did you know that jesus is only called savior twice in the book of acts and 29 or 92 times i should say he's called lord twice savior 92 times lord you you think the title lord is significant (laughs) the apostles preach jesus christ as both lord and christ it's what you find over and over and over he's lord and he's christ That's why the most basic Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. In Romans 9, 10-11, you probably memorized it in the Romans Road. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It goes on to say, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be or shall be saved. Now, there are many people that will affirm that Jesus lived as a man, and some believe that he was even God. The demons do that. But many people refuse to bow to him for who he really is, which is Lord. And if you don't bow to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. You don't get any of his benefits. The Bible says He's both God and He's Savior. And in salvation, you're acknowledging both of those things. I mean, you can't say, I want the salvation part, but I don't want the God part. Any more than you can say, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want God. I mean, how ridiculous is that? And if He's your Savior, He's your Lord, which means that you submit to Him. 
Paul says it's not the name Jesus that causes them to bow. It's His name, Lord. And that's why His Lordship is assumed in, in salvation. I've had people ask me, do you, do you believe in, in all that Lordship stuff? And I know what they mean, typically, when they ask that question. Um, but I always ask, what do you mean by that? You always answer a question with a question. Because you want to know what they're, what they're asking. And it usually goes something like this. Their answer usually goes something like this. Uh, do you believe that you have to make Jesus Lord of your life in order to be saved? And I usually answer the same way. You don't make Jesus anything. He is. He is Lord. And if He's not your Lord after salvation or in salvation, then I don't know who He is. Some people have wrongly taught and been wrongly taught the idea that salvation is like some series of decisions. You, you first accept Jesus as your personal Savior and you're saved from your sins. And then later, somewhere later in, in life, you make Him Lord, like when you get serious. Then you become a, a real disciple, and, and that's absent in the New Testament. You can't find that taught anywhere in Scripture. Now, it's direction, not perfection. The point is not that, that you keep the law perfectly, but when you bow the knee to Christ in salvation, you acknowledge who He is, that He's God, and He's the one who saves you from your sins, and you desire to obey Him, and you bow to Him. You receive Him. I mean, I don't even know how it even works to, to pull it apart. And is it possible to use Jesus as your get-out-of-hell-free card, but never acknowledge Him as God? You make Him personal Savior, but you don't make Him Lord? It's ridiculous and dangerous. He is Lord. And in salvation, you realize that and you bow the knee. And notice Paul tells us who declares Jesus to be Lord, who gives Him the name. It's not you, it's, it's the Father. He is Lord. And the Father exalted Him and gave Him a name, and that name that He gave Him was the name Lord. So let me get really practical for a second. If you're a believer, you, you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, you, that Christ has saved you, and then you don't want to follow what, what He says, you, you don't want to submit to Him, you, you don't obey His Word. When, when, like in Matthew 18, someone brings to you and shows you that you're in sin, but then you refuse to submit to, to His words, you're likely not a believer. I mean, that's the whole point of Matthew 18. That's the reason in Matthew 18 there's no list of sins. You go if they're in adultery or whatever. If you see your brother in sin, you show him his fault, meaning you lay out, this is what Christ says, and if he hears you, if he obeys, if he submits, then you've gained a brother. And if not, you take two or three witnesses to confirm, yes, this is what Christ demands. And if he hears him, the same thing happens. If not, it goes further, and there's a final declaration. Let them be unto thee as a heathen and a publican, as the King James says. It just means that that you now, they've declared themselves as an unbeliever. Because you can't say that Jesus is, is, your, is your Savior and disconnect that from, from His Lordship. It's not possible. Your compass points towards sub- submission. It's not perfection, but direction. And Paul says, one day everyone will declare Him as Lord, some to the confirmation of their salvation, and sadly others to their damnation. Look at the... Number three here, the third stage. 
of his exaltation is the reaction. There's the basis of his exaltation. That was his humility. The right of his exaltation was this, this new name. And then the effect or the reaction of his exaltation is that everyone, all will bow in worship of him. Look at you at verse 10. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now I want you to notice that Paul starts with the words that or so that in verse 10. It's a, it's a purpose clause it, and it goes with those two actions, to bow and to confess. It tells the purpose, tells us the purpose that God gave Jesus this exalted name or the result. He gave him the name so that bowing and confessing would take place. It was the purpose that, that he gave him the name, that, that every knee would bow and every tongue will confess. And Paul says, every knee bows, that's submission. Every tongue confirms or confesses, that's to subscribe. And when you put those things together, it's, it equals total worship of Jesus Christ for who he is. Now, some people already do that, right? You do that. Praise God, I do that. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ if you're his follower, but, but others don't call him that. And Paul says part of his exaltation is all will. Notice who will submit to his supreme lordship in verse 10. He describes three realms of the universe here. He says, first, those who are in heaven. So that the name of Jesus, in verse 10, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven. There's the first realm of the universe. Those who are in heaven. I mean, who's in heaven right now? Well, the angels are in heaven right now. And the redeemed are in heaven right now. I said in the 830 service, Ruby Coleman's in heaven right now as a believer. She's up there with the other saints that have died. And they... Paul says they'll, they will bow and worship and confess the deity of, of Jesus Christ. They'll do that happily. They're doing that anyway. The angels are. The redeemed believers are. You'd expect that. But notice what else Paul says. Those who are in heaven and those who are on the earth. Second, Paul says those who are on the earth. Now that includes believers who have not yet died. Who will be on the earth whenever Jesus Christ returns? There'll be believers and there'll be unbelievers. They'll be on the earth. They'll be alive on the earth. Believers who have not yet died, but also unbelievers. And at the coming of Jesus Christ, there will be two groups on the earth, those who long for His coming and those who will be surprised by it. And at that moment, the believers will bow before Him as their blessed hope and anticipated Lord, and they'll worship Him, and that will be a confirmation of their, of their salvation. But the unredeemed on the earth, they'll also bow before Him. They'll bow the knee to the one that they reviled and the one that they rejected, and they'll confess that He's truly Lord. And sadly, it'll be a confirmation of their condition. They'll have to say, He is God, He is Lord, and I never received Him. But the passage goes even further. Those who are in the earth, or those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, and now it says those who are under the earth follows the same pattern as in Ephesians. Who's under the earth? Well, the fallen angels and the people who are in hell that, that died in their sins. 
they too will bow the knee at the final judgment and acknowledge that they deserve e- eternal punishment. Listen, I, I heard people say, you know, when I stand before God, I'm going to tell God, fill in a blank, whatever it is. I got a raw deal or, or I, I want, you know, you're, when you stand before God, you're not going to say anything. You're going to fall on your face as a dead man. That's what you're going to do. And the one thing that you will say when you stand before God is Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what you're going to say. And you'll do that at the great white throne judgment if you're lost, confirming your rejection of Him and your ultimate damnation. You want to be in the first group and the first part of the second group. You want to be the believers left on the earth or you want to be the believers in heaven. You don't want to be in this last group. You want to bow the knee now while you can unto salvation, not at the end when it can only confirm how foolish you were to live and deny Jesus Christ. This passage is is actually taken from Isaiah 45. I, I would encourage you to go back and read Isaiah 45 today, beginning in verse 18, but here's the specific quote. God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. Who does God swear by? There's nobody greater than himself, so he swears by himself. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord are righteousness and strength and men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. Every knee will do that one day. And you should do that today if you haven't already. But there's a final stage. The final stage is the goal of his exaltation. The goal there's the divine basis. It's because of Christ's humility and, and God's, God's gift. Be it an exalted right, he got the name, which is above every name. There was a worshipful effect. Every knee will bow, all of the created universe. And now here's the ultimate goal. Look at the very end of verse 11. That, at the, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, here it is, to the glory of God the Father. Paul finally comes to the last stage and he gives the goal of it all. This has been the whole goal of redemption. The plan in eternity past, it being worked out on on earth, the, the promise of what is to come. What's the goal of it all? The humility of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. He tells us right here. It's the same thing Ephesians 1 says. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace. He says it was for the glory of the Father. And now we're back where the hymn started, aren't we? We started in heaven, we end in heaven. Jesus existed equal with God. And he did not consider that, the fact that he was God, something to grasp or something to to hold on to. He laid it aside or he emptied himself. He gave up that that glory and he did that. Because he did that, he, he will be exalted and that brings glory to the Father. MacArthur said to proclaim the sovereign lordship of the Son is the greatest glory that can be given to God the Father. And here you get an amazing peek inside of the inner workings of the Trinity. 
the Father sent the Son. The Son joyfully goes. The Father then exalts the Son, and in exalting Him, the Father is glorified. Walter Hansen said the entire hymn is God-centered and God-glorifying. And we came from heaven's glory to the lowest place on the earth, and then we even went under the earth in, in, in the grave, and now we re- return to heaven in an upward journey where the one who laid aside worship receives it from in, the entire creation, and in doing that, the Father is glorified. The one who died as a slave on a Roman cross now sits on the highest throne as Lord over all creation. It's exactly what Jesus said right after he exposed Judas and dismissed him. You remember John 13, the Lord's Supper? It says, therefore, when he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. How was the Son of Man glorified? He humbled himself. He was betrayed and died. And then he was resurrected as a victor. And he ascended as the God-man. And he will be crowned Lord over all. And the Father is glorified in that entire plan. And in the humbling work for sinners, and in that exalting glory, the Father smiles and is glorified too. And now we're also back to where we started as well. Remember, this is not just amazing theology, although it is. This is an illustration and an exhortation. It's a call for you to do the same thing. If you want to be lifted up one day, you must have this attitude in you, which was also in in Christ Jesus. You must humble yourself. You must come through the door of salvation the same way that you enter into the the church in Bethlehem. You humble yourself by coming to God and acknowledging your sin. You humble yourself by by confessing that there's no way to be right with Him other than what what He did and, and apart from His grace. And you confess that Jesus Christ bled and died in your place and you that you receive Him as Savior and you submit to Him as Lord, that that He is God. And then you follow Him in the same way all the days of your life. And the Bible says that if you'll do that, then God will lift you up. He'll lift you out of your sin. He'll wash you clean. He'll give you a clean conscience. When was the last time you laid down when there wasn't any noise going on inside of your head and it was silent because you knew you had peace with God. There was nothing bothering your soul. That's what Jesus Christ can give you. He can cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He can make you clean, something that no drug or alcohol or or human being or, or any other person on the planet can give you. He'll lift you up out of your sin, and one day He'll lift you up out of the grave, and He'll seat you with Him in heaven all because Jesus was humbled and exalted. And so the question that you have to answer is, will you do that? Will you humble yourself so that God can exalt you? Or will you stay lifted up and know that God is against you and one day he'll bring you love? I hope it's the first. So does the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, I do thank you for the clarity of a passage like this. Thank you for showing us not only what you have promised to do with Jesus, but what you will, will do for us. If we would but confess and believe the qualifications that we need in order to be saved is, is be a sinner. And everyone meets that. And the qualifications that Jesus has is that he humbled and himself and he bled and died and, and he was vindicated, he was raised so that we might, might be forgiven. Thank you for exalting him. And I pray, Father, for anyone here today or maybe watching that's never bowed the knee to Jesus, they do that now for your glory rather than later whenever it's too late. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.